Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Seth Weiner, Associate Professor of Second Language Acquisition and Chinese Studies at Carnegie Mellon University. Dr. Weiner, thank you for coming on Lost in Citations. Thank you very much for having me. It's uh, what time is it? Your time? 10 p.m.? It's a little after 10, East Coast time. Now, are you near your university, Carnegie Mellon? That's in Pittsburgh? That's in Pittsburgh, yep. I'm in a little part of Pittsburgh called Shadyside. That and sounds shady. I can, it's great. It's very <laughs> delightful. And I can walk to campus. Um, there's another neighborhood near called Squirrel Hill. Um, the neighborhoods in Pittsburgh are great. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, I'd like to start the show by learning uh, about your background, but I, I just have to say, just on a quick look at your profile, looking at where you got your, your undergraduate and your, your master's, it's just really impressive. So I guess my first question is, you know, what was it like going to the University of Michigan? <laughs> Zing. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, um, I, I mean, I've know, been planning that one for a while. That, that one, that one seems like it was written up weeks ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, at the Ohio state university, um, we, we just talk about that school up North. So I've, I've heard of this school, but I don't know much about it. They're not, they don't seem to be very good at football. I don't know. Yeah. So a little bit of context to the, the interview. Um, we both have a mutual friend named, uh, Sean. And Sean is the one that kind of introduced us to each other. And I, I was talking to Sean, I think a couple months ago when this interview was about, and I told him my plan. And he was actually really curious about how you would react. Because <laughs> I told him in like the pre-recording meeting, I'd give like no hint of a joke or nothing. And I would just like be like super professional. And he was just wondering exactly what you would do. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's great. So there is um, a story. I don't know that I've ever told anyone this. I did get into Michigan. I applied to Michigan, um, but didn't go and, um, you know, ended up going to the, the major rival. And so, you know, there's always sort of in the back of my mind that what if had I gone to Michigan? Mm. Now, all right. So let's 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 jump into your background. Uh, again, I'm going to kind of hand over the, the floor to you if you could Give us your history of, you know, as, as a child and, and what le led you down your academic path. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I was born in the Midwest in the U.S. in Indiana, small town. And I lived there and I lived in a small town in Ohio. And that's where I met um, our friend Sean um, and had never really been out of the Midwest Um you know, kind of grew up in these small towns and really only been exposed to that. And I wanted to leave and go to college somewhere, uh, really just in a city. That was kind of my, mm -hmm. my hope was just to leave these small towns and, and go to some city. And so I went to school um, at Boston University, which is just a very urban campus right in the city. And I was originally kind of interested more in like programming and math. And I even briefly thought about astronomy and was taking a lot of science classes. Um, but there, there was a language requirement. And so I had to take a language class and I had taken Spanish and Latin in high school. Mm. And I decided to just take something really hard and challenging. And so I picked Chinese 
though at that time I did not know the difference between Chinese and Japanese and Korean and really anything. I, I had very little knowledge of, of languages beyond English and Spanish. Hmm. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. It was so challenging and fun and weird and different than anything else I had ever studied or been exposed to. And my junior year, I ended up studying abroad in China. And that was really the first time I had been outside the U.S. It was the first time I had ever lived in a foreign country, um, a place where I couldn't speak the language. You know, I had studied two years in college, but um, to go to China after, you know, essentially four semesters, I still couldn't really do anything. And I just completely fell in love with it. And it was a complete life-changing experience, both um, the language and the people and the culture and everything that came with that. Where where so, in China did you go? Uh, I started up uh, up north, sort of near the Russian border. They um, the program had us go up there because the Mandarin up there is really clear. There's no real accent. It's kind of like going to Indiana or Ohio in the mm-hmm. U.S. And then um, from there, I went to Beijing for um, the the rest of the time that I was there for for a full year. So, what were your expectations linguistically? Did you? Because when I came to Japan for the first time, I had I had not studied Japanese at all. So mm-hmm. for you, did you have some expectations? Okay, at least I'll be able to do A, B, or C. But you know, doing X, Y, Z will probably be difficult. Yeah, um, I honestly thought I would be able to do more because I had taken you know four semesters, two years of Chinese, and I had studied really hard. It, it was really something that I devoted a lot of time and energy to. So when I got there and I couldn't understand anyone, that was kind of a shock <laughs> and a, a little bit of a blow to my um, confidence. Um, but then it just really became, you know, a, a challenge and a game, and it, it got to be the sort of thing where every day I just tried to to do something. I remember being there, sort of at the beginning of my experience, and and just trying to f- first of all find the post office, then mm. get to the post office and buy stamps, and that was like, you know, a four or five hour journey just trying to figure all of that out. And when I first went to China, I didn't have a cell phone, um, you know, so it was. Like I didn't have dictionaries, you know, it was all just kind of um, winging it. And there was something to that that was just so fun and different. Like I said, I I had never experienced any of that. I always uh, thought it'd be cool to have like a VR learning game for studying languages. And the Mm -hmm. levels would be something like that. So the first level would, you, you know, go to the convenience store and buy something or... The second level yeah. would be this, or the third level, because it, when you when you do go to that, you know, the foreign country, and you're trying to navigate your way through life, it does feel like a huge amount of satisfaction when you accomplish something, even like very small. And that, right. You know, it's just it's like a like right. you said, like oh my oh my god, I I I I post I I sent a letter, right, 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 yes. Um, the, <laughs> There was this great line. I can't remember 
where I read it. Maybe Pete Hessler, who's a phenomenal writer and writes about China, but um, calling these events like these these small tragedies that you can endure. And it was just like getting lost, trying to get from my dorm to the post office. It was a small tragedy, but I could endure it. And then the result was I eventually got there and I eventually mailed, you know, my, my parents a postcard. <laughs> and, and, you know, on the, on the flip side, you know, I met Sean when I first came to Japan in 2007. And it took me a few days, but I didn't, I didn't know that Sean could speak Japanese. Mm, so yeah. that, that experience is almost doubly as powerful when you see somebody do it uh-huh. and they can accomplish a task. It's almost like a superpower because he was <laughs> like, we were just, uh, I think we went to lunch one day, we went to the sushi place and he just started ordering stuff in sushi, uh, ordering stuff in Japanese. Uh-huh. Within his, the, it wasn't just he was speaking Japanese. It was like his pronunciation seemed exceptional. Yeah. And then he went to like to the post office and was doing all this stuff. And I, I, I still remember that feeling of just awe. Like, yeah. like what the heck, man? Like, what? that's <laughs> insane. How do you do that? <laughs> yeah, I, I love that both stories involve post offices. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if you've been to Japan, but it's doubly hard because some, some of these post offices serve, serve as a bank as well. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, same. Yeah, same in China. So it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a nightmare. Yep. <laughs> All right. So you, so you're in your third year at Boston University. You do this study. How long was the study abroad for? Uh, so it was a full year. Whoa! And then um, I came back, and I had actually. At that point, um, I, I was sort of interested in the Foreign Service, and my I ended up graduating with international relations major and a Chinese minor. Wow. And I I still kind of wanted to work for the government and had these, um, I don't know, maybe like illusions of being a spy and and something really um, exotic and sexy. Really? Kind of going there, you know, this this was all prior to to going to to China and, and sort of actually living there and then learning the language and everything, then I, I immediately realized, um, you know, this is, I'm far more interested and passionate about the language and the politics and, you know, international relations, the government, this is, this is not for me. Hmm. So after, uh, you graduated, that's when you went to Ohio state. No, I came back to, to China and I lived in China for, um, Let's see. It was another two years, and I, I lived in Taiwan for a year. So altogether, it ended up being about four years total before going back to grad school. Oh wow! Okay. All right. So you spent you graduate from Boston University, and then you spend four years in Asia. You said you said Taiwan, China, yep. Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, I I mean you know. We had long breaks. At that point, I was just working. So um, I spent time, yeah, in Korea, Japan, traveled around Southeast Asia. Once you're over there, you know, you have these holidays. And I was working all sorts of jobs. So I had um, time to travel and, and see all of these other countries. What, what kind of jobs were you doing? <laughs> I was doing a lot of goofy stuff. Um, most of the money was through translating, interpreting, editing, stuff like that with the language. But um, I would just get all sorts of stuff. So my roommate and I, at one point, we um, had some like security stuff where we were 
bodyguards, but really they just wanted, you know, foreigners who could speak Chinese. Um, I did some um, clothes modeling. I did some voiceover stuff. I did some uh, stuff with the Olympics, um, with baseball, because it's you know, the Olympics were coming to China. They didn't really know anything about baseball. Um, I, I just, you know, it, it was sort of, if you speak the language and you speak English, there's a lot of doors that just open up. And then once you start meeting people, you know, it's just kind of like, oh, I, I have this job. Would you be willing to do it? So all sorts of stuff. I, I, I got to ask about, you know, because I've never been to China. Mm-hmm. Um and I talk to people who have been to China and they always say like great things about it. Mm-hmm. But when I – and we don't have to go too deep into this, but just and, – and I guess you – you know, after you graduated college, it's like we're talking 20 years ago, right? So I, I don't know mm-hmm. if things were different, but just the, the – and I guess this is true in any country, you know, the, the outside viewpoints or the, what, what you think a country is going to be is definitely different than when you actually go there. But as far as like the control of the government and as far as like things you can and can't do or, you know, I guess social media wasn't a big deal or internet wasn't a big deal back then. But Mm -hmm. what was your – did you ever have a feeling of an expectation of like the Chinese government being repressive before you went and then feeling like – and how did you feel when you went there or were you too young to even like consider like the (laughs) socio-political stuff and you were just sort of just fascinated with like how strange everything was? Yeah, I I certainly knew about all of that because, like I said, I was international relations before, and so I had taken classes and read stuff. But honestly, when I was there, and you know, my my purpose was to study the language, and I was still an undergrad. That stuff never really affected me. Um, and again, yeah, like you said, there was no social media, internet. We we had to go to an internet cafe. I mean, I didn't have. Um, internet connection in my dorm at that point. There's no Wi-Fi. So all of that stuff didn't exist. Um, there were certainly a lot of police, um, you know, everywhere we went, we stood out. So people were always asking us and, you know, we would get checked for like our ID, our passport, that type of stuff. So it felt more of like a kind of government watch state in that regard, but Mm -hmm. I always felt safe everywhere I went. Um, I never had any problems. Um, you know, now that I'm doing research and I have colleagues who are doing research and it, it's sort of, it's a different beast now because some of the things that we might publish might offend the government or might be a little bit um, considered sensitive. So it's totally different than when you're, you know, 1920 and you're just trying to figure out how to say, you know, bring me another beer, please. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So after, you know, w- w- let's talk about your skill level. So you know, how good were you at, you said you were studying for two years. You did a study abroad your third year, then you graduate, then you go over there for four years. When mm-hmm. in, in, in Japanese, they split it into five level tests. Mm-hmm. Um, five is the easiest and one's the hardest. And it's like five and four, pretty close. There's a big jump between four and three. There's an enormous jump between three and two. And then there's another mountain between two and one. Mm-hmm. So, like for me, I'm around like a level three now, uh, just as mm-hmm. like, and the kanji stuff is still, it's going to be like a lifetime, life, lifetime battle. Sure. But like how I would say when Sean was in, when I first met Sean, Sean was around a level two. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but he had been studying really hard in, in, at Ohio State Japanese. He said the program was amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, he had done a, a year study abroad. So, like, compared to like your first when you first got to China, and then and then two years later you're living over there. Like, mm-hmm. like what what was there like a huge level jump at some point? And because obviously you're getting all these gigs, and so that means you must have been good enough to speak the language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the the end of the study abroad year, I, I felt really, really good. And I came back and I had one more year in BU where I took the advanced course and felt really confident. And I think at that point, um, I did like a an oral test and was up in the, the top level, I think. My characters, you know, it's like you said, I think that's exactly it. It's a lifetime. So reading and writing, that's always been kind of a struggle. Um, but when I came back, I felt really good. And then I, I spent the year in the U.S., graduated, immediately went back. And then at really that point, because that sort of I'm no longer in the classroom, but now I'm working and meeting people and being out. And so at that point, my Chinese really became more, I'd say more fluent in the sense that I could do everything that I needed to do day to day. Whereas before my Chinese was really, you know, I I, I was good in the classroom, I was good in specific environments. But once I was there working and living, you know, like I could talk to like an electrician when our lights went out, which, wow. you know, that that's not like a, a chapter in the textbook. Right. <laughs> so you sort of get those, those things that really you can only learn and acquire when you're immersed in living in the culture. So when did you, when did you, when did you decide you wanted to go back or is that, can you talk us through your, why you entered oh, yeah, the master's yeah. program? Yeah, so definitely um, <laughs> after a few years in China and then that year in Taiwan, the year in Taiwan, um, I was working, it was kind of like my most serious job of, of the time there. I was working for this company and we were helping students come. It was like a consulting advising educational company and we would bring students to the U.S. and we did test prep and stuff like that as well. Mm-hmm. And so um, at that point, I was really kind of thinking more seriously about coming back to the U.S. and going back to school. And I knew for sure that I wanted to do something with language and linguistics. Mm-hmm. And um, just really kind of looking at what my options were and, you know, Ohio State, um, like you said about the Japanese program, the Chinese program is the same way. It's it's one of the top. It's excellent. And they have such a unique campus in that you've got this world-class linguistics department, these amazing East Asian languages departments. Um, and then you also have, you know, computer science, stats, psychology, all of these things that I was interested in. Mm-hmm. They're all there. And it was close to home. I had been away for so long. So it was just kind of the perfect, it, it, everything on my checklist, I was able to, to check off. And so it was just kind of a no brainer. What, what was the, what was the masters in? What was your focus? Uh, so they, at OSU, they don't admit directly into the PhD program, no matter who you are or where you come from. Mm-hmm. So the, I did a master's in Chinese linguistics. Um, which was just kind of like, uh, coming in, um, and in a, in a weird way, it was like brushing up my academic Chinese and then taking a few, um, core required courses before I jumped into the PhD. So you had already decided you wanted to be a career researcher? 
Um, I think so. I, I certainly did not know what that entailed, but I knew I wanted to go back to grad school and learn more and do something with linguistics and Chinese. Um, but to be honest, you know, I think when I was applying to PhD programs, I did not really fully know what that meant. And did you already have like a PhD proposal? Did you have like a research plan of what you wanted to do? No, <laughs> no. And, and I think that's another reason why the OSU model is the right decision, because I think a lot of people like me, I had the experience and I was really passionate, but I just, you know, I didn't really know. I didn't study linguistics as an undergrad. Mm -hmm. And so I needed to kind of come in and, and learn some of the basics and, um, take those classes and, and just really kind of catch up with the other people. So in the end, what was your PhD about? Uh, so I kind of transitioned into more um, psycholinguistics and I had an advisor in linguistics and an advisor in um, East Asian languages. So it, was, it became this really interdisciplinary program, which again is, is one of Ohio State's many strengths. Right. All right. And then, uh, so we're going to start talking about the paper pretty soon, which is second language learners develop non-native lexical processing biases. So in the timeline, uh, from the PhD to this paper, how many, how many years are we talking about between the two? Um, about a decade, about a decade. Okay. Yeah. So was this something that you had been thinking about in your PhD days as well? And this is sort of a, a linear path from that, from that, or, or is there something that happened in that decade that, that took you on a different path? Yeah. So as a grad student, you know, one of the big things that you just do is read a lot of papers. And I read this paper, um, that really got me thinking about the role of consonants and vowels in a language like Mandarin, which mm -hmm. is so different from most of the languages used in psycholinguistics. Most of the psycholinguistics research comes from English and Dutch. These mm. are the two major languages. And so there's, um, there's a couple really well-known papers in this field that kind of make these really strong, bold claims about how consonants and vowels work. And um, the paper in particular, in particular um, was written by, uh, I think his name is pronounced Van Oyen, mm -hmm. Dutch researcher. Um, and he came up with this incredible experiment. And I read this paper and was just really, really passionate about it and wanted to extend it to Mandarin Chinese. And so I did that as a grad student with another grad student, Rory Turnbull. And we carried out the, the study and were able to write it up and we submitted it to a journal and it got accepted. And so this was really the kind of the first step in this process. What was the, what was the methodology of the Oijin study? So it's called reconstruction. And the idea is that you play somebody a non-word. So you play somebody a, a sound that it could be a word and it certainly sounds like a word, but it's not. So then an example would be Kibra. 
And so they hear this non-word, kibra, and then you ask them to change one part of this non-word in order to create a word. So you could ask them to change the consonant. So you could change kibra, the beginning k sound. You could make it a z sound and it becomes zebra. Mm. Or you could ask them to change the vowel and the kibra, the e sound could become o and it becomes cobra. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's it's brilliant. And it's, how did he come up with that? Yeah, that's that is the real question. I have no idea. This is um, it was and it was this amazing methodology. And there was only really a handful of papers that um, built on it. And it would just kind of been laying there for a long time. And then, like I said, it had been tested in English, um, Dutch uh, and Spanish as well. So the purpose of the test is is what? Um, so this gets into this idea of sounds that we are biased towards, mm -hmm. and there's really these two broad categories of speech sounds, these consonants and vowels. And the idea with this reconstruction method is that you, um, are giving them this, what, what he calls in the paper, a perceptual template. Mm -hmm. for all of these real world words that you know. Mm -hmm. So in that Kibra example, it's a template for both Cobra and Zebra, right? So and, I thought of Cobra. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I didn't and think about the, Zebra. The way that it's structured is you, you do a couple trials, well, you do a lot of trials in a consonant condition where you have to always change the consonant. Uh, okay. then, then you do a lot of trials in a vowel condition where you always have to change the vowel. And then you do a couple... Um, a lot of trials in a free choice condition where you can choose to change either the consonant or the vowel. And so it's, it's really kind of looking at how you use that template to access these words that you know and how flexible or how mutable you are in terms of your consonants and your vowels. So the open choice aspect of it, is that the most powerful part of the test or you, you, you have to collect the data from all three of those phases? Yeah, you, you want to look at all three to see um, you're, you're essentially looking at accuracy, you're looking at response time, and then in that open choice, you're looking to see what they favor. Because theoretically, you know, you could be about the same accuracy in the consonants or vowels, but then when you have the choice, you always favor consonants because that might be easier. All right. Well, before we get into the paper, I think we should talk about the 2016 paper. Um, so... Yourself and Turnbull. Turnbull mm -hmm. was your PhD advisor? No, no just a classmate. Okay, okay. Um, I thought, yeah. I, did you mention his name already on the show? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah, yeah. Rory, Rory Turnbull and I um, were at OSU together and we would, uh, we took a lot of classes together, drank a lot of coffee together. And um, he, he has a lot of interest. Um, he's a professor now um, in, oh man. Uh, I don't know where he was now. He he was in Hawaii. Um, I don't know. We can Google him real quick. He's an amazing guy. Um, where is he? Um, Newcastle University. He's originally oh. from Scotland. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And so he's interested in, in phonetics, phonology, psycholinguistics. So he had a lot of overlapping interests. And um, 
honestly, he is much smarter than I am. And so I had this idea and I needed his help. And he was like, yeah, this sounds cool. Let's do it. <laughs> so we did it together. And the idea was, yeah, we, we took this reconstruction paradigm, this method, and we extended it to Mandarin Chinese. And in doing so, then we created a fourth condition where you could change the tone because Mandarin is a tonal language. So ah. We presented people with these non-words, and we asked them to change the consonant, then we asked them to change the vowel, then we asked them to change the tone, and then we asked them to change whatever they wanted. And what, what were the findings of that? So were you looking for patterns in, in biases for Mandarin right. speakers? Right. So um, the thing that um, – the, the work before – sort of coalesced around was that English listeners and up to that point, really, all listeners of the languages that they had tested had a bias towards consonants, which meant that they tolerated more vowel variability. Hmm. So the English listeners change vowels faster than consonants, more accurately than consonants. I think that's what you just said, right? You changed the vowel. Yeah, I thought of cobra. I didn't think mm -hmm. of zebra until yeah. you said it. Right. Yeah. And then the free choice, they favored the vowel. So the idea that um, all the work before sort of pointed to was that um, these listeners of, of English and Dutch and Spanish, and it was sort of extended to potentially be a universal, um, their bias towards consonants because consonants play the special role in these lexical processes. So related to words, any sort of um, process related to words and speech and and even extended beyond to, to reading and writing um, segmentation all of it um, is is sort of favoring these consonants and sort of allowing for a lot of vowel variability mm. but when we extended this to mandarin that did not hold um, a very simple explanation is because it's a tonal language and the vowel is primarily the unit that carries the tone. Mm. And so you can't tolerate too much vowel variability because that results in a different tone. So what we found was that Mandarin listeners would now um, prefer changing the consonant and not the vowel. So they had more consonant variability than the vowel. How many tones are there in Chinese? There's uh, In Mandarin, there's four tones. Okay, so can you again? I'm not a very smart person. There's Mandarin and there's another kind of Chinese. Mm -hmm. And they have yeah, different. So, they have a different number of tones. Right. Yeah. So if we talk about Chinese just as a language, typically what people mean is Mandarin because that's the the lingua franca. But okay. you know, if you talk about Cantonese, there's a completely different tonal system. They have more tones. If you talk about Taiwanese, they have more tones. It's a different tonal system. Also, different um, consonants and vowels as well. Um, really. Whoa, so are you like fluent in all three of those? Oh, no, no, not by any means. No way. So in um, in, when you were living in Taiwan, you were speaking Mandarin and people could understand it, even though they spoke a different variant? Uh, yeah, they speak it, the, the Mandarin that they speak is slightly different, but it's, it's mutually intelligible. Um, Taiwanese is a separate language, and that is completely different. Mandarin and Taiwanese. So I guess I should I should clarify. There's um, sort of mainland Mandarin and Taiwan Mandarin, mm -hmm. and then there's there's Taiwanese, which is really, um, it's I guess the proper name is Southern Min, 
the, mm-hmm. it's, it's part of the, the Min dialect family in southern China and Taiwan. And so that language is not mutually intelligible. So um, I could speak a little bit of that. I studied a, over a summer in grad school. I went back to Taiwan to try and learn Taiwanese. Um, but it's really, really hard. Um, what about so can, I, can, you said Cantonese? Yeah, Cantonese. I don't speak Cantonese now. Where do they speak that? Uh, Hong Kong and southern China, like the Guangdong, Guangzhou. Oh. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so wait, so I'm, so you said, so Mandarin has four tones. Mm-hmm. Cantonese has more than that. And Ta- Taiwanese has more than that. Yes. Yeah. And so it, it's how you count the tones um, is a little bit tricky because in those dialects or languages, um, they have certain tones that appear with certain syllables. And so, um, it's not really a pure tone in the sense of like Mandarin, where the tone is sort of an important piece on the syllable. Mm-hmm. So in those instances, sometimes the tone in the syllable um, is redundant. Um, Have so you ever you, met somebody who can who's fluent in Cantonese, Mandarin, and Taiwanese? All three? I don't know. There's a lot of people who are fluent in Mandarin and Cantonese. A lot of Chinese, I mean, anyone who lives and works in southern China has to really more or less be fluent in those two. Um, same thing with with the older generation in Taiwan. Um, I'm sure I've met people who are fluent in all three. Yeah. Wow. All right. So... Well, so that was the 2016 study where you added the the tonal, um, right, right. We added the, the Oijin methodology, right, exactly, and we showed that this um, potential universal doesn't hold true in terms of languages where the vowel carries the tone. Um, and so this means that these biases that um, other people were talking about and writing about um, were, were perhaps a result of either the words that you know or the sounds, the acoustics of the sound. So really um, there's something in, in, you can think about in the, the way that you're producing or perceiving the speech. Right. Okay, so then there's the 2016 paper. Uh, were you working at Carnegie Mellon at the time? So, right. I, I finished um, at OSU in 2015 and moved to Pittsburgh. So, you know, the way that publication works in academia, um, it was accepted before I graduated and it was it was basically done, but it didn't actually become published until I was at CMU. So the kind of the timeline is we finish it, we submit it, it gets accepted, um, then we graduate, and then it comes out when we're no longer at OSU. So you, what was your position that you? So you got a job at at, at um, Carnegie Mellon mm-hmm. right yeah, after so, your PhD. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I started as an assistant professor of second language acquisition and Chinese studies. What kind of classes were you teaching? So it's kind of the perfect position for me because I can do something in Chinese and that 
oftentimes involves a language class or a culture class or a Chinese or East Asian specific linguistics class. And then I also teach grad classes in our second language acquisition program. And that's more um, research methodologies, stats, um, speech, this type of stuff, experimental stuff, psycholinguistics. How, how is your uh, Mandarin now? Is it, do you... Um, unfortunately I'm not, you know, I talked earlier about like being able to talk to like a plumber or electrician that is no longer there because I'm not doing that. I'm not having those conversations. Um, I use my Chinese here in Pittsburgh. You know, I talk with my students and, and my colleagues. Um, I use it at restaurants, but it's, it's obviously deteriorating. I haven't been back to China or Taiwan in many years. And, you know, now with COVID, I don't know when I'll be back. There's that, I, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's that, that YouTuber in New York who just, I don't know if you it might be interesting to you. I guess his Chinese is really good. I, I have seen this and he does speak um, a bit. He's got a really good trick where he can speak um, a bit of Cantonese. I think he speaks a couple different dialects, a bit of the, the Shanghai dialect. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. It's great. It's really great. And he just, yeah. all he does is record people's reactions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he just yeah. comes in looking kind of like a doofus. Yep. Yep. It's great. Yeah. He, I mean, it gets millions and millions of uh, – do you think a lot of his um, views are from people watching from China? Oh, they must be, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's kind of it's kind of playing off that um, – <laughs> a little bit of the, that Seinfeld trope where – remember George's father spoke Korean? And, and Elaine was getting her nails done in the Korean, like the Korean shop, and they were all just talking all these terrible things about her. Oh man, yes, I do. I had forgotten about that. Yes, amazing. So when you're in Pittsburgh, you you use Chinese when you you go out to restaurants. Do you get like a nice reaction? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, they love it. Um, yeah, you know, there's there's a couple of places here I really enjoy, and I'll go and I'll order in Chinese, and we'll have a, a little chat. Um, yeah, it's great. That's cool. All right, yeah. so that's kind of leading up to this paper, which again is second language learners develop non-native lexical processing biases. Can you talk a little bit about the impetus for th- this paper and and which gaps that you you were trying to address? Sure. Yeah. So. Um, after I published this paper with Rory in 2016, and we showed that using this reconstruction paradigm, we can extend it to Mandarin, and the results do not align with what had been done before. In sort of in between that and me coming to CMU, I, I, I really had been thinking about where to take that next, and I thought about you know okay th- there seems to be this dichotomy between people who are biased towards consonants and people who are biased towards vowels. And this seems to sort of align with, in a very simple way, English and and Mandarin, which are the two languages that I know. Um, But during that period, there had been some other work that started trickling in. So there's some evidence from Cantonese, which we talked about, you know, another dialect where they they essentially found similar patterns using a different methodology. Um, but really the kind of super exciting finding was there was evidence from Danish. Mm. And this is from Danish children. And it points to Danish, which 
is I don't know if you've ever heard Danish. No, I haven't. So it's somebody um, described it once as trying to talk with a mouthful of marbles. Huh. And it's a language where all of the consonants kind of um, blend together. <laughs> so um, there's there's something really unique happening in Danish. And so it actually patterns along with Mandarin and Cantonese um, in that listeners tend to favor vowels rather mm. than consonants. So this sort of all gets me thinking about, well, what are we doing when we're going back and forth between different languages? So learning a new language, if you speak English as your first and, and Chinese as your second or vice versa, um, you're essentially having to juggle different biases. And what might that look like? Um, what are the ramifications of that? What could we do as language instructors, language learners? So the paper kind of picks up at that point and really tries to first show that bilinguals can actually switch between the two. So you can learn a new bias. Even if your first language biases you to consonants, you can learn a new language that might bias you to um, vowels. And I also want to show that you could actually just use a bias in a way similar to another L1 listener. So I start by doing the reconstruction experiment in English, um, and I test a group of L1 Chinese who are L2 English speakers, mm -hmm. um, as well as L1 Spanish who are L2 English. Mm. Um, and I just sort of, this, this is a, a way to um, uh, replicate the work that's been done before and just show that these L2 listeners can do the same thing as a control group of just monolingual L1 speakers. So the ramification for teachers or language learners is that developing this bias in the second language is a good thing? Yes, definitely. It's, it's definitely a good thing. It's part of learning the language. Um, and so really you need to be flexible, especially going across languages. Um, and then, you know, the, the second part of that was I did it again going in the other direction. So learners of Chinese, people like me going from English to Chinese. And with that group, you know, these were people who are still in the classroom. So these were people with relatively limited exposure, relatively late age of acquisition. You know, the, the Spanish and Chinese L1 speakers who were in the U.S., these were pretty functional bilinguals who had been studying English since they were kids. Mm -hmm. um, whereas in the second part of the paper, when I look at it in the Mandarin learners, these were people who had only had, you know, three, four years of experience. Mm. So not only can a new bias be learned, it can be learned later in life. Um, it doesn't seem to be inhibited by your age of acquisition. Um, and it's it seems to be a crucial part of the acquisition process. All right. So can you talk a little bit about the, the study, setting it all up and, and finding the participants? And were there any sort of challenges along the way? Yeah. So this was... One of the first studies that I did when I got to CMU and I um, started my own lab where I have a little space where I conduct experiments and have grad students and undergrads working in it. And the project, you know, it involved um, how many groups did I have? So I had a um, essentially a, a native um, monolingual English group. Mm -hmm. 
I had a L1 Spanish, L2 English, L1 Mandarin, L2 English group. So those three groups. Then I also had two more groups for the Mandarin side. So Mandarin L1 and then L1 English, Mandarin L2. So it was essentially five groups of participants. Um, and each group had, you know, 25 to 30 participants. So it took me over a year to find everybody. Mm. Um, and I had all of these undergrads and grad students helping me. Um, and it really, one of the major problems was this was the first paper that I ever wrote entirely on my own. Mm. Um, one of the nice things with working with, you know, your advisors in grad school or, you know, some amazing, um, collaborators, colleagues like Rory, who I wrote the other paper with, you just have another set of eyes. And so you have somebody who can help edit and help think things through. And this I tried to do entirely on my own. And so I don't know if you looked at the paper. A lot of papers have the date it was received, the date it was revised, the date it was accepted, the date it was published. Um, so this essentially took about two years from submission to acceptance because I had to keep revising and revising and revising. Um, it was, it was just a, a massive undertaking both as a new professor doing a paper on my own for the first time and the scope of, of getting all this data and analyzing it. What, what, what are the pressures as far as publication at, um, CMU? Because that, that's always a challenge, right? Because you, right, you have these, these, these publication delays and, yeah, absolutely. Um, so it, it's hard to sort of give an exact number, but, you know, they, they look at obviously quantity, but also quality. They want to see that I'm publishing in top journals. Um, they want to see that the work is, you know, kind of cutting edge and, and doing new things, new exciting work. Um, so it's, it's hard to just sort of say exactly what they're looking for, but, you know, I was certainly worried that, you know, this was taking two years <laughs> to get accepted. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So did you receive a grant from, from CMU? Um, so I have received grants. Yes. For this project, this was part of my startup. So typically if you do experimental work, when you take a job, your department gives you money to help you get started and you can use that money, you know, like I bought equipment for my lab. I use the money to pay participants. Um, and, and that's sort of the money that I used to run this experiment and, you know, buy the equipment necessary for this experiment. Um, and then from there I was able to get grant money from other, um, agencies and other places. So you were able to collect all your data before COVID? Uh, yeah, this, this study for sure, because this study um, was, well, like was lucky. 20, 2015, 2016. Yeah. Yeah. So the lab, my lab at CMU has been shut down and we've shifted to online data collection. Um, and I've been working with some really amazing grad students. We have a paper. Um, it's our first like pure COVID paper where we collected all the data remotely. Mm. You know, we analyzed it, we wrote it up, we submitted it. It's under review. So the entire process was done um, during the pandemic and we'll see what happens with that. Yeah. I mean, there's certain research interests that can survive better than others in this COVID <laughs> era, right? Because a lot of right. my research interests are are based around like the psychology of interaction and how certain factors affect performance. And you just yeah. can't replicate that with the screen. In some right, ways, those exactly. factors are taken away. Right. Um, yeah. But as far as like a purely linguistic 
study, I think you, you could, it might even be easier in some ways. Like you can record it on Zoom, you can do all this stuff, right? I mean, the data collection, yeah. I guess, has challenges, but in some ways it, it could be easier, right? You don't have to deal with like, you don't, someone says, oh, I can't come because people don't cancel as much when it's on Zoom. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are definitely pros and cons and we've been able to, it's, it's really opened up the door as far as participants because we were always kind of limited by the students on campus. And now, you know, there's these amazing recruitment sites um, like Amazon Mechanical Turk, Prolific, where you can post an experiment and you can sort of say who you're looking to get and open it up and you pay people and, you know, you have 50 to 100 participants in a matter of days, really. It's incredible. All right. So the paper, what was your, what was your hypothesis going in? Because I guess my hypothesis would be that, you know, your L1 bias would really you know, influence your L2 learning until I guess you become proficient. I don't know if that's really the, I don't know if that, that might be outside the scope of your paper as far as like, you know, proficiency levels and things. But I, I would think that, you know, the L1 bias is really powerful. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. So yeah, like I said, there's really kind of two parts to it. The first part is just really confirming that you can learn a new bias mm. and, and making sure that the bias that I see is not the same as the L1. Um, and so that was the first part. And I, I had a hunch that you could, because otherwise, you know, if you think about all of these bilingual Mandarin English speakers who, um, you know, are able to communicate without a lot of difficulty, it seems like they're doing everything that we're doing as native English speakers. So my hunch was, yes, they could. And, and the first part really does confirm that and shows that they do it really rather well. Um, the second part gets more to what you were saying, which is that, you know, what happens if you are not very proficient or you learn the language later in life, mm. um, and and this was really kind of this age of acquisition, this immersion, you know, again, the, the ones that I did in the first part, they were all in Pittsburgh and they were all studying abroad, immersed in the L2, whereas the ones I did in the second part, these were students who really were only exposed to Chinese an hour a day in the classroom. Mm. So they were not immersed. They were pretty low proficiency and, like I said, late learners. And so there, that was really kind of... I, I didn't know. I wasn't sure if, if I would see it. And I was amazed that I did see it, that they were able to do it, obviously much less accurate, much slower, but I was still able to capture evidence of them applying this new bias in their second language. What was the response from the field? Um, so it's it's a small corner of, <laughs> of psycholinguistics that are looking at this. Um, there's a couple of us, uh, but... It, it was pretty um, encouraging. The reviewers that I had were very patient. You know, the, the two years that it took, I think I, I went, I don't, I can't remember, three or four rounds of peer review. Um, and I think that one of the reasons it was was because they wanted to make sure I got it right and that the results really could speak to what this might potentially mean. And so um, the field, I think, was very supportive, very excited, very encouraging. Um, but also, you know, 
making sure that I got it right. And there's been a couple studies now um, that have come out and really supported this idea that these biases we see are language specific. They're not universal. And it seems to be the case that you can acquire them um, when you learn another language. And these biases are not dependent upon the age of acquisition or perhaps the proficiency. That's the thing um, that is sort of still unknown. So at what point are these biases acquired? Um, so it might be instantaneously, once you kind of get a sense of the language, it might take some time, you know. Do you think it's important for language teachers to highlight these biases? Or do you think some people just, be, I don't know, I guess it would depend on the person, right? Because when people go too in-depth about a language, uh, I just kind of tune it out. Mm-hmm. Like when people start really dissecting a language too much, like I uh, maybe on a, a like a surface level, if someone just said something very simple, like okay, in this language you got to focus more on this than this, I would understand. But mm-hmm. when they go too far into the weeds, I just tune it out. So I kind of wonder, like, what's the balance when you're teaching someone a second language? To you know, because these people that are teaching a second language, they're masters in it essentially, mm-hmm. right? They know everything about it. What are the key things that like a, a language teacher should be telling somebody, you know, or should they be like when you were in high school taking Spanish, mm-hmm. I guess, that, I mean, the Spanish and English are, are pretty similar, right? So right. Yeah. I, just, I just kind of wonder, like, are you, would it be helpful to, to make a teaching textbook called make your students <laughs> have bias? <laughs> yeah. I, I think I think you you get it right when you say you don't want to get too much into the weeds and simply telling learners to pay attention to consonants in this language or pay more attention to vowels in this language is probably enough at the beginning. So if you know I tell my students you know obviously we've got to pay attention to tone but um, I tell them you know really the vowels are important you've really got to pay attention to the vowels um, and. I think sort of that type of approach is more beneficial to the learners because, yeah, absolutely, you don't want to start, um, you know, first semester class and start getting into fricatives and, you know, bilabial stops and, and it, you lose half the class immediately. Mm-hmm. So I think just saying this is a language where consonants are really important and you want to pay attention to those and vowels maybe not so much. You know, I think that's a a good first step for for learners and for instructors. All right. And maybe to finish off the interview, um, uh, I'd like to ask people, do you have any advice for, you know, young up and coming researchers or academics or teachers as far as, you know, balancing your your time, your energies, your priorities? Um, what, what, What kind of things along the way have you learned to to help yourself in your career? Uh, not, yeah. not going insane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is, ooh, yeah. Um, it's, it's tough. It's really tough because I think you go into research because you love it. And I certainly did. And I lost myself in the work, uh, especially when I started my job at CMU. Um, it, it was just sort of so fun, you know, going back to my time in China is so challenging, so fun, so rewarding. And I think most of us go into the field for that reason. So if you lose that, and I had some friends in grad school who did lose that, that is a good 
litmus test. If you no longer have the passion and you no longer find it fun and rewarding, you should probably consider doing something else because it's, it doesn't get any easier. You, you do this, especially once you start in academia, if you're on tenure track or teaching track, this is what you do all the time. So make sure that you still have that passion. Um, because that's, that's really the most important thing. Um, assuming you do still have that and you're able to, to really, um, keep going with that, I would say the important thing is learning to say no and to, to press pause and walk away because it's so easy to just keep writing and keep collecting data and keep analyzing it because this is the thing that I love and that I'm really passionate about. Mm. Right. All right. Well, that's, uh, that's great stuff. Again, if people would like to read the paper, uh, the name is Second Language Learners Develop Non-Native Lexical Processing Biases. Um, Dr. Weiner, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a blast. Um, I, like I said, I, I love talking about this stuff. And so I'm thrilled that people actually want to hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, go Wolverines. <laughs> Lost in Citations is an audio journal that invites you to contribute your own interviews. If there's someone whose work you cite regularly and you'd like to hear more from them, then please feel free to arrange your own interview and submit it for consideration. For more information, go to lostincitations.com, where you'll find our guide for contributors. What we ask is you submit a five-minute audio sample before the interview so that we can help you with any audio quality issues. Then you can go ahead and record 45 minutes to an hour and submit it at lostincitations at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, we have Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter pages. Finally, a very helpful thing you can do is, if you like the work we're doing, recommend it to a friend. Thank you very much.